0: This is Listen Again with the Bridge, your opportunity to hear Sunday's message. We hope you enjoy listening, and it all starts right now. We are beginning a new series today, and it's called Bodybuilding. And as we talk about bodybuilding, we're not talking about our physical bodies, we're talking about the church body. And so today, as we begin this series, I really want to focus on our core. If you are bodybuilding uh, physically, you've got to have a core to be able to sustain what you're going to do when you're working out. And in the same way, as we're bodybuilding today, as we're talking about who we are as the church, the core of who we are really comes down to understanding what it means to say we are the church. The church is not this building we're in, the church is us as the people. And what comes to mind when you hear the word church? Think about that. For some of us, it's more maybe of an emotion than a thought. Or do you believe we think of church the way the first church thought of church? Because we think in terms of a building. From the very beginning, the church was more of a movement. It didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin with liturgy or traditions. There were no Bibles Think about that. There was no fellowship hall. There were no bands to stand up and lead us in worship. The church began as a movement around one event that we celebrate once a year. We call it Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is how the church began. And I really want to share this with you today. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to have to ask you to like put your thinking caps on and just hold tight with me. You ever been talking to someone and you're, you're having this conversation and they start in on a really long story? And by midway through the story, you're like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? You know what I'm talking about? You've all been there. Don't do that to me today. Okay? So I'm going to tell you what seems like a really long story, but I want you to hold on and capture the idea of how the church began. Again, it all started around the resurrection of Jesus. He was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And from that, when people began to believe that, there was not only this testimony of what they had heard about, but it actually, it was eyewitnesses who actually saw him raised from the dead or saw him after they saw him die on the cross. So what I want to give you is a little background as to the whole idea of how church began. And again, this is a bit of a story, but it solidifies who we are and what we believe about the church. So the New Testament, you know, was originally written in the Greek. And the Greek word for church in the New Testament is the word ecclesia, you can probably find that somewhere in your Bible. In the back, if you look uh, through the, the back part of it, you would probably find this word, but it's ecclesia. It actually means an assembly or gathering. It has nothing to do with a building. It means assembly or gathering. It's not talking about a place with four walls. It's referencing people. And when, when Jesus launched the church, he launched it as a gathering of people. But as time went on, there was a transition from this idea of a movement and it went from being that to a location. And so I want to tell you a little bit about this. If you look at church history, even medieval history, you can find that the church went through a period where everything was kind of backwards or wrong. And the Greek word, again, ecclesia, was transitioned into a different word. It's a German word. I'm not German, so I'm going to try to say it, but it's the word kirch. You can see it on the back of your bulletin. It's K-I-R-C-H-E. And that was the word they started using for church. But the meaning for kirch, the actual meaning is the Lord's house. Now, when I grew up in church, my parents pastored, I didn't wear a hat in the Lord's house, right? I didn't run in the Lord's house because that was disrespectful to the Lord's house, which I totally understand. And I, I, I get that, I understand, but what happened was within 300 years, just 300 years, this idea of gathering or movement or congregation or assembly became a transition into the idea of this English word for church, which was the Lord's house. So in your English New Testament Bible, the little Greek word ecclesia, which means gathering movement or congregation is actually translated as Church. Again, this is why many of us get this mindset of it's a building, it's a place I go. But what we can see is there's no relationship at all between congregation and movement and a location. Other than we come together in a location. We come together in a spot. You know, when church plants started happening, if you think back 20, 30 years, a lot of people started starting new churches in bigger cities, around towns, all this kind of thing. And they would take a school, they would rent the school out, and they would start church there. They'd rent a movie theater. And people had a problem with this because they're like, man, I need a steeple. I need pews for it to be a church. Because... They had this mindset that church was a place I go. It was the building. When in fact, again, this is all a throwback to the Old Testament idea of a temple. If you think about it, uh, in Israel, there was a temple and the people of God gathered in that temple and God lived in that temple. So there's this, again, transition resulted into bad theology. Before long, church was located in a building. Now here, hang with me. Because here's what happened. Whoever controlled the building controlled the church. So whoever controlled the building controlled the church. That meant they controlled the scripture. They could translate it however they wanted. So whoever controlled the building controlled the church. Controlled the scripture. Which meant they controlled the people. Because they told the people how they should act. I don't want to go through that list again. But what it came down to is they controlled each one of those things. Which meant they could even control the government. That's how far off this got until something happened in the 16th century. A man by the name of William Tyndale, a scholar, came along, and he'd had enough. He'd had enough of the church manipulating people, and so what he wanted to do is William Tyndale decided he was going to translate the Bible. He had seen it happen, and at this time, people went to church, and they would listen to a priest and from, he would read from Scripture, which the average person couldn't even understand. So the priest would, again, translate it in the way that he wanted. So he controlled the people. He controlled the truth. He controlled uh, the church. And William Tyndale said, enough of this. And he began to translate what is the Greek and Hebrew word of God. And he translated that into English. If you actually went on Amazon or wherever you want to go to buy a Bible... Many times you will find on that Bible, it'll say Tyndale version or the Tyndale study Bible or things like that. It's because William Tyndale was the one to translate that from Hebrew and Greek to English. And suddenly the average person had a copy of God's word, not a handwritten copy because that's what they had back then. They had people that would sit down and handwrite the entire word of God and those were very expensive. No one could even afford that unless you were very rich. But now the average person could afford to have a Bible in their hand. Now William Tyndale actually was known as an outlaw. He had to flee and uh, England, he went to Germany actually to finish doing the writings. And at one point he was betrayed by a friend who brought him back to England and he was tried as a heretic and they hung him. They said he was an enemy of the church and that he was a heretic for trying to translate the Bible. And these Bibles got out and the church that thought in terms of location and thought in terms of, hey, we can control people, began to lose their power. Because average people could now read it for themselves and go, hey, that's not what that said. And understand it for themselves. And one of the things that drove those religious leaders crazy about William Tyndale, one of the things that he translated correctly is he translated ecclesia not as church, not as a building, not as church, but he re- translated it as "congregation, as people," as the gathering of people behind one thought that Jesus Christ was the Son of God." It was an attempt to return the New Testament and to return the gathering God's people back to what it was meant to be. He was right. The church was actually, again, a growing group of people. This is exactly what Jesus said, and this is how we find this. So I want to read to you some scripture that helps us understand how the first church began. We've talked a lot about the first church in Acts chapter 2 because we try to model our church after that. So you've heard a lot about that, but we've never gone this deep into helping you understand how it all started. So that's why I'm looking forward to this. If you look in the book of Matthew, you'll remember we've referenced this before. Jesus has this incident where he gathers all his disciples together and he asks him a question. Probably a question that many of us would not want to ask our friends. But Jesus got his disciples together and he said, who do people say that I am? What are they saying about me? And his disciples said, well, some say you're the reincarnated John the Baptist. Some say you're reincarnated Old Testament prophet. And then there was Peter. Some dudes uh, Sometimes Peter got it wrong, but not this time. He, he saw it right, and he said, we believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you look in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus replied like this. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that today, excuse me, that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my what? On this rock, I will build my what? Church. Church. I will build my ecclesia. I will not build a building. I will build the people that are going to gather around the idea of who I am, the Son of God, which Peter just told him. He said, we believe you're the Son of God. Peter, you're right. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. We're all going to start this thing called the church based on this idea that I am the Son of God. See, you can lock the doors of a church, a building, but you can't lock the doors on Jesus' ecclesia, on Jesus' church. You can't lock the doors on that. The gates of hell can prevail against a building because it can burn down, a tornado can hit it, whatever, but you cannot. That's why he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, or a better translation would be the gates of death will not... Overcome it is actually what it said, or prevail against it, whichever you like. No matter who dies, the church will continue because it's about the people, it's not about the building. And that's what Jesus told them, which meant no matter what, again, this would continue forever. So, not long after this conversation, if you read in your Bible, you're going to find that Jesus went to the cross, he died. They crucified him. As you know, three days later, we celebrated every Easter. Jesus rose again. And at that time, the Bible tells us he spent 40 days with his followers. I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to do some math here a little bit later. 40 days he spent on the earth. He gathered them on a hillside at the very end of this, and he gave them some final instructions. And in Matthew, this is what we call the Great Commission. He told his disciples, go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know that scripture. It's very famous, the Great Commission. What I want to show you today, if you have your Bibles, is I want to show you how this went down in Acts. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be Acts 1 and 2, both of them today. How the church began, and it all began with Jesus predicting this. He's already said, on the idea that I'm the son of God, I'm going to launch this movement. And again, just before he leaves, he gathers, if you read in Acts chapter 1, he gathers the people together. They said there was about 120, 100 to 120. In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, listen to what it says. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Again, they're thinking about a kingdom. They're thinking about a building. They're thinking about a structure. They're not thinking about a movement or a gathering of people. And Jesus says this, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's talking to 100, 120 people on a hillside. And he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And can you imagine, I'm sure they're going, well, what's that mean? What's this power for? I'm going to have superpower? What do I get to do with this power? What does it say? Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, what? Witnesses. They're going to be the witnesses. They've already seen some things take place. They've already witnessed what happened with Jesus. But now they're going to have the power to be witnesses. They didn't have the power to go, you know, make things just pop out of nowhere. They had the power to be a witness. Keep that in mind as we keep going. Again, we're going to see all this unfold in just a moment. Verse 8, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, that was the place where they were in this moment. Judea, that was the surrounding area. If we were to say Burlington Junction and Hopkins and Savannah and all the places around in the area, that's Judea. Samaria, that's a place they didn't even want to go. But they were going to be witnesses there. And then it said to the ends of the earth. So if you will, try to picture this. You're standing with a man who Rome crucified. The religious leaders hate he's already overcame death. He's standing with 120 people and he says to them, I want you to take what I taught you and take the fact that you saw me overcome death, hell, and the grave. And I want you to take this message to Jerusalem, which they could be like, sure, no problem. That's easy. We're right here. We're going to have the power to be witnesses. But then he says to Judea, okay, we can hit the surrounding areas. No problem. I go over there for bread. I go there to fish. I do whatever. you know. We'll, we'll hit those areas. We can do that. You're going to do it in Samaria. Uh, wait a minute. We don't even like to go there. Those aren't our people. To the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus, do you know how big the world is? I mean, you are, after all, Jesus. Surely you know this. How's he going to pull that off? How's he going to take this 120 people and cover the world. This is one of the most significant prophecies in the Bible. And we're going to watch it unfold right here. Jesus departed. The group of 120 went back to the city of Jerusalem and they began to pray together for two weeks. Two weeks. How long was Jesus on the earth after he died? 40 days. Now we have two weeks. That's 14 days. So we're talking 54 days, if we were getting real specific. Let's just say two months, okay? Two months after Jesus has died and rose from the grave, two months later, two weeks after he's just told them what they're going to do, that they're going to take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's what's about to happen. It's Pentecost, and that is a a festival that happened in Jerusalem. Pentecost was very similar to the Passover. So Pentecost was the celebration or festival where Jewish people came and gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem. This is May 23rd. We actually had Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday happens every year. It's a day where we celebrate Pentecost. But people from all over the known world gathered in Jerusalem. And this is pretty important to remember as we're talking about this. Because Scripture tells us that while this 120 were meeting... We know that Mary was there, the disciples were there, Jesus' brothers were there, and they're praying together when suddenly the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon them. You can read it for yourself. And all of a sudden, these individual followers of Jesus, who he had just talked to two weeks ago, were able to speak the language of all these people that had gathered in Jerusalem. They're literally, they don't know the language, but they're telling other people about Jesus in their language. People from all over the world have come to Jerusalem and here it says they're speaking the language of all these people. Tell me that's not on purpose. Tell me Jesus isn't fulfilling exactly what he said. They went out into the city and they began to talk and these people from all over the world were hearing their language spoken by these Galileans these fishermen, these common everyday people were speaking their language. What strange and mysterious story are they telling? They're talking about this Messiah who came, who was crucified just two months ago, but who also came up out of the grave. This wasn't five years ago. This wasn't 10 years ago. This was two months ago. And the significance of this is it wasn't one language It wasn't for a people. It wasn't, it was multinational, multicultural, multi-ethical, ethnical. Excuse me. Peter decided it was time to deliver the message. We've got their attention. There's a stir in Jerusalem. We've spoken the language of all these people. So this is when Peter decides to share a message. And Peter stands up and begins to preach the first sermon. It's the opening day of the church. And he draws to some Old Testament prophecy, and he talks about how Jesus, excuse me, quotes some Old Testament scripture and says, you shouldn't be surprised, God predicted that this day that would happen, where the message was not just given to Jews, it was given to everyone. So look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 22, and we're going to unfold this story. Here we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's going to preach. He says, Fellow Israelites, talking to all these people that got their attention because they were speaking their language, right? Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to do miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. What's he saying? Jesus came to the earth. He was there not too long ago doing miracles, healing some of these people. Oh, yeah, my brother was healed from that guy. Oh, yeah, he helped my leg. Or he did this for me. You know, he just did this stuff. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So he's reminding them of very recent history. Again, didn't happen a long time ago. We're talking 50, 60 days ago. Man, I did see that guy drag that cross through town. I did make fun of him. I did walk away and not help. I did see him crucified. And Here's what Peter said. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from any agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Man, Peter is giving it to him. He's preaching this message. He's saying, the guy you tried to put in the grave, God just brought him back. This is the Messiah. He is Christ. Skip down to verse 32. Again, I only got so much time, so we're covering this quickly. I want to keep your attention. Verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. He's he's starting to get personal here. This gives me chills just thinking about it. It's amazing watching this unfold. These first century believers were not just simply teaching what Jesus taught. Christianity was about embracing the idea that they saw him hang on a cross, but then they saw him afterwards overcoming death, hell, and the grave. They were witnesses of the fact that he was crucified. A lot of people saw it Look at that again. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. What did they see and hear? They saw these Galileans, these disciples, these everyday people speaking their language. They heard it with their own ears, telling the story of Jesus. Peter's helping them to understand. That's the Holy Spirit using us to speak to you. Do you see this? He's helping them understand as he's sharing this. This is the Holy Spirit which God allowed to come. Therefore, verse 36, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Now he's going to get real personal. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Can you imagine the silence? The crickets as Peter's holding them right here. Remember that guy you put to death? God made him Lord and Messiah. Everything he said has come true. You couldn't keep him in the grave. He is greater than death itself. Peter's got him right there. And he's holding him. Look at what they say. I'm sure there was a long, awkward pause. I would have made sure there was anyway. Let them think about it. The fact that they put this man to death, but now he's Lord and Messiah. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They they were speechless. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What have we done? Peter's got them. The Holy Spirit did this. The Holy Spirit was what allowed them to speak the language of all these people, to tell the story of Jesus, to get their attention, to bring them to this moment so that Peter can have them right there. Brothers, what shall we do? I love this next line. Peter knew exactly what to say. He said, You sign up to work in the nursery. He said, you get on the worship team if you can play the guitar. He said, you don't just watch church online, you get to church. Why are you laughing? You must read your Bible. That is not what he said. This is opening day of the local church. For many of us, we think church, we think attend church. Oh man, I got to get back to church. Oh, I got to get my family in church. I need to find a new church. Because we think in forms of building and church. Here, here we are, and Peter's got them. Those who, That wouldn't even make sense to them if he said, get back to church. Here's what he said. He replied, and he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the one who was raised from the dead. The name of the one that you crucified. Repent. That means turn from what you did. Be sorry for it. Be baptized In the name of the one who forgives our sins. And here's the promise. Look at what it says. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very thing they had been just seeing and hearing. Repent and be baptized. And the promise is you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise goes on. It doesn't stop with you receiving it. Look at verse 39. The promise, this gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far off. You know what that means? That means us. We're the ones who are far off. We weren't there that day. That was 2,000 years ago. It wasn't two months ago. We weren't there, but we can see it and we can read it. And for all who are far off, the same promise is there for you. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the promises, the gift of the Holy Spirit will come with you. You will receive that. This is Peter saying this isn't just a Jerusalem thing. This is not a generation thing. This is not an us thing. Well, we just, you know, at our church, I mean, God is there, you know, we have Him at our church. I don't know about those other churches, but we have got it. No, it's, it's all who are afar off geographically. All who are afar off chronologically. This is something that's going to reach beyond our lifetime. That's why Jesus could say to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of death will not prevail against it. No matter who dies, the church will continue to move on. We talked about it last week. Our bodies, because of sin... We are under the curse of decaying. We're going to die and go on, but the church will still be here. We are the church. This is an event that happened, and because of this event, they begin to repent and be baptized because they believed. They didn't do the altar call. Anybody grow up with an altar call? Just as I am. And everybody would come to the front, everybody kneel down and pray. Had some amazing times during those altar calls. They didn't have to do that, it was already there. Sitting there, there was conviction, there was passion, there was a desire to repent. Why? Because they realized what had happened with the one that they had put in the grave. And in that moment, they believed for the first time. when They didn't believe when he was standing there talking to him. They didn't believe him when he said, I am the Messiah. They hung him, for they put him on the cross for that. First altar call, what happened? 3,000 people believed. 3,000 people said, I believe that was the Son of God. And I believe that Holy Spirit is for me today. I do want to repent. I do want to turn. from my, I want to get baptized. Can you imagine how many baptism videos had to be made? 3,000 people? That's a lot of footage, Mark. I don't know Mark's in the kids' room, but I can't imagine putting all those videos together. 3,000 people being baptized. Because they believed. Now here we are 2,000 years later. At church. You know, we have Christian church, we have a Methodist church, we have a Baptist church, we have non-denominational church, we have Assembly God Church. We have all kinds of churches. Got a sign on the building. This is who we are. What connects all those churches? What's the one common denominator that makes that place a church? It's not the sign on the building because they're all different. It's not the way they worship because if you don't like the way we worship, you can go across town and they probably do it a little different. It's not the liturgy. It's not the way we do communion. It's one thing that connects all the churches. It's what the church is built upon. It's the rock. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for you and for me. So that we can be forgiven. That's what the church is built upon. Jesus started it that way. As a group of people willing to believe that. I think some of you. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. But have you truly repented? Have you truly Repented to the point of, I've got to get clean. I've got to wipe everything out of here. I've been, I would have been one to put him on the cross. I would have been one to say, I don't know if that's really true. Is that just a story we read in a book? Is that really what happened? Or do you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died so that we can be free? And when you repent and you're baptized, it says the gift of the Holy Spirit, you receive that. It comes upon you. It's the one thing that brings us together is the fact that he paid the price for our sins for the entire world. It wasn't just for a certain group of people. It wasn't for the church that worshiped this way or the church that did communion this way. God dwells in us. We gather here at the bridge in Jesus' name. We gather as a movement of people that it didn't matter if we would gather out in a field in the middle of nowhere, God's going to be there. This is his house, but if we gather in a field or at a school or at a movie theater, wherever we go, God's going to be there. Why? Because we're there and he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. That's the core of the church body. you got to understand what the church is, and I don't know what it's like for you. I don't know what you grew up in. What, when you hear the word church, are you hurt by that word? Are you hurt because of people from the church? I pray that that would change today and that you would understand the church is not full of perfect people. It's full of hurting people. God didn't come for church people because there were no church people. Are you with me? He came for you and me. So will you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that this this idea of church would just come alive in people. That we would understand that when we walk out of this place, the church continues. It doesn't stop at 10.30. It doesn't stop at 9.45 or whenever we walk out of this place, church isn't over. It continues. Constantly, because you're moving in and through us. Because we are the church. Are we truly taking this outside of these walls? Do we disconnect from church the moment we walk out the building? Back to fireworks. Back to lunch. Back to whatever is going on in our day to day. Or are we truly being the church, the way Christ established it? the way he predicted it would happen. Father, I pray that you would change our mindset, change our heart toward the church. And God, I pray for anyone in this room right now who maybe has been hurt by the church. It's imperfect people that they were hurt by. I pray that you would help them to see Christ died for those people that hurt them just as much as he died for them. Father, remove the hurt from those who've experienced that in church. God, I pray that you would help us to walk out of this place understanding who we are as the church, as the body of Christ, the body of believers. The reason we call it believers is because we believe what Christ did and we believe he did it for us and we believe he did it for everyone outside of this building who needs to know your name. Help us to be the church outside of this building. Not the bridge. Not First Baptist. Not some name on a building, but we would be the church who you've called us to be. May that be the core of who we are inside. Lord, is that happens in each one of us. As we come together, there is strength in unity. There is power in unity. When we worship you, when we honor you, when we come together as a gathering of people believing the same thing, you are there in a miraculous way. Mighty things happen in those moments. Great things happen in those moments. Lives are restored. Families are restored. People are forgiven. Hearts are touched in those moments. Not because of the building, but because we're together as the church. I pray for those today, Lord, who truly need to repent. And I'm just going to ask when it comes to repentance, sometimes it helps. You know those altar calls that we used to have? Those altar calls was was a way for you to stand up and walk forward to say, "I'm going to repent. I'm going to be forgiven today. I'm going to release everything that I've done and give it to Christ in this moment." So what I'm going to ask you to do is simply raise your hand and say, "Chad, I want to repent today." I'm not going to ask you to come forward, I'm not going to ask you to kneel at the front. I just want you to say, "Chad, today is the day I need to repent and be forgiven." If that's you, would you just lift your hand for me? Thank you. Why don't we just all pray this prayer together? For these that raise their hand, we can just all pray this out loud together. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe in you. And I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me so that I can be forgiven, so that I can be accepted, so I can release my sins and walk in freedom. I love you. I surrender my life to you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.